My name is Steve Lowenstein. The scripture passage today comes from the New Testament book of Matthew. I'll be reading from chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Sorry to <laughs> jump in before it's your turn. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Hello. My name is Bill Verville, and I'm the jerk pastor that upstages the Covenant Partners here at Grace 242. Uh, (laughs) It's wonderful to have you here in worship today. Um, I've been the pastor here for a little over a month now, and in my time here at Grace, I've been doing a lot of thinking of, like, what do I want to see out of Grace 242? And I think that answer is pretty easy. Um, I want to see what God wants out of Grace 242, and then that prompts the question, well, what does God want for Grace 242? And that question is a little more layered um, but this series, Less is More, that we're in is all about what does God want for Grace 242, and that's what this series is all about. So before I preached my candidating sermon here at Grace 242, you all held a sort of a get-together for Morgan and I on Thursday night. It was an open house here at the Nature Center, and, and Morgan and I found ourselves on stools up front here, and you all were kind of asking us some questions, and I remember it was at that open house that Ken Turbeek said something that kind of haunts me to this day. He said, you know, Bill, I've seen, as I look at the American church, I look and I see sort of a shifting of people that whenever there's a a pastoral transition, it seems like there's a contingent of folks that either leave because they're not happy about the new pastor or they don't like what he says, and then there's also a contingent of folks that come because they like what the new pastor has to say and they like the way that he's leading. And that statement of Ken's kind of haunts me because I think he's really put his finger on sort of a truth that happens here in the American church, and that's that the American church is obsessed with what's most popular and what's most attractive and what pastor preaches the best. And, and so every time that there's a pastoral transition, you get this contingent that sort of moves around. And, and I saw that when I was at First Presbyterian Oostburg, when I, I predated Pastor Brian at First Presbyterian Oostburg. And uh, so my joke always was, I've been here longer than you, <laughs> so, um, which is, was the truth. But I, I, I predated him, and, and I remember when he came, and there was some people that didn't like it when he came, and they were mad, and they, they didn't like what he had to say, and, and so they left and, and moved on. And I remember reading some sort of nasty letter about Pastor Brian in the elder meeting, and, and then conversely, there were also people that liked how he preached, and they liked what he was saying, and, and so they came to our church, and there was this sort of shifting around. And, and the problem with this is that even though there's shifting and there's growth in between these individual congregations, the problem is that the overall kingdom of God isn't growing at all. Whereas congregational numbers might be rising or falling based off of the leader, their overall number and the overall population of the kingdom of God isn't growing. Ken, you must be smart because there's a man by the name of Alan Hirsch who agrees with you. He's like an author and speaker and writer. And he says this, he says, the vast majority of the Western church's growth comes from switchers, as he calls it, people who move from one church to another based on the perception and experience of the programming. 
And so what Alan Hirsch is saying is that these switchers simply are just looking for whatever is most popular, whatever is most attractional, whatever they like to hear the most, whatever worship experience they like the best. And meanwhile, while all this switching is going on, the number of people in the kingdom of God still remains the same. And so that's the problem is that the kingdom of God really actually isn't growing even though people are switching jerseys and switching churches. I think this is indicative, this switching, as Alan Hirsch calls it, is sort of indicative of sort of this polluted addition mindset that we have here in the American church. Who's ever seen the movie Field of Dreams? Raise your hand. You ever seen the movie Field of Dreams in here? Okay, yeah, a lot of people. Pretty old now. It came out in 1989. And I remember I first saw it at my friend's house. He cared way more about baseball than I did. And I remember I kind of like, eh, there's ghosts in this movie. This guy's a Christian, you know? Like, <laughs> it's kind of a weird movie. But if you, if you don't know the movie, this, this farmer played by Kevin Costner, he hears these voices, which is always great, right, when you're hearing voices. But he hears these voices that say, if you build it, they will come. And so kind of on faith and listening to these whispers, he builds this baseball diamond in the cornfields of his farm. And and then sure enough, after he completes the baseball field, these ghosts of baseball legends gone by come out to play baseball on this field. All right, which is kind of creepy if you ask me. But I'm told you still actually can visit this field in the field in Iowa today, that it's actually like a tour. Anyone actually been there to this field? Oh, wow. We actually have you. You've actually been there. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, you can visit this field. All right, but why I bring up Field of Dreams is this: Can you all still hear me? Okay, good. I think we're. Is my thing cutting out? Oh, oh, all right. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, all right. But why I bring up Field of Dreams and if you build it, they will come. Is I feel like that's kind of the prevailing mindset, that polluted addition mindset that we have here in the American church. If you build it, they will come. If you build something attractional enough, if you build something that's that you know, captures people's attention or captures people's imagination, or if you build a, a fireplace in your foyer, or if you have, you know, a good enough coffee, or if you have a good enough worship band, then that will attract people to come to your church. I have a video that I want to show you, and I, I like this video because it's a satire, and it's a sat- it's like a trailer, a movie trailer, <clears throat> for a Sunday morning worship service, all right? And I love this movie trailer of a Sunday morning worship service because I feel like they've sort of captured the formula of this if you build it, they will come, or they've captured the formula of this attractional sort of addition mindset that we have here going on in the American church. Let's watch the trailer. You can't stop it. It's coming to a town near you. It used to be called contemporary. Some call it relevant. We're so cool, we call it contemporant. Young hip guy welcoming all with gravity and cool glasses. I welcome everybody with arms wide open, revealing my tattoo so you know I have a past. Quirky transition to band. Invite everyone to stand. Let's do it. This is the song that everyone knows. It's the song that everyone knows. My new song. Nobody knows 
the ushers up as we prepare for our offering. Hmm. Feel free to give if you feel led. It's between you and God, but we're tracking it. all the answers showing a picture of a puppy and or a baby from an impoverished third world nation speaking softly to draw you in and then emphatically driving home my point long pause whispering repetition still pausing pained expression long prayer so that the worship leader can get back on stage this is the closing song With strings that'll make you cry Coming soon to your town A new kind of church You will be lifted high And challenged to grow We call that Grotivation You call this Sunday morning they won the papyrus award and all sorts of stuff. So um, papyrus font award. But I like that video because I think it sort of captured this formula that a lot of us have adopted here in the American church of something that's attractive enough or cool enough so that we can build to add people to our worship service. Francis Chan, who is a pastor and an author, kind of he, he lays out three steps that the American church follows in order to build the church, in order to build to add. So these are the three steps that Francis Chan sees when he looks at the American church. Step one, find a pastor who's a good speaker. So bring in a pastor who's a good speaker. Step two, bring in a band, a cool band that plays cool songs that everybody knows. And step number three, build a building. Those are the three steps that Francis Chan lays out that the American church follows in order to attract or add people to their church. But the problem with that is we have a lot of people following that model, who are coming into a worship service, hundreds or thousands of people coming into a worship service with open mouths, and they're saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. And then they come in to hear a message from one person or a small little corral of people, and they're constantly coming in week after week saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. And nobody's ever learning how to feed themselves. Okay, that's the problem. No one's ever learning how to feed themselves. Um, I'm getting excited because... Um, Colin is to the point now where he can almost eat by himself. Uh, you know, we, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we used to have to do everything. When they're infants, you literally have to do everything. And then it, it got to the point where now, you know, I was spoon feeding him or cutting up just this microscopic pieces of food to feed him. And, and now we're to the point where we can pretty much put his plate in front of him with, su- with suction cups on the bottom so he can't, you know, move it. So you suction cup the plate down and then he can eat it by himself. And The only thing we really have to do is we have to ration his apples because he loves apples so much that he will just pack his mouth full until he has chipmunk cheeks 
And then what happens is now these chipmunk's cheese, he can't chew and get it down. So it'll just come, you know, eventually it all just comes like exploding out. So we have to like give him some apples and then wait and then give him some more apples and then wait. But he can almost eat by himself now, which is really uh, encouraging and a lot less work for me. And so, but the whole point is when you have children, you want to teach them to feed themselves. You don't want to be feeding them forever. You don't want them living under your roof forever. The whole point of being a parent is to develop your child and grow your child so that you can eventually launch them out into the world. And the problem with this polluted addition mindset is that we got a lot of people who are open mouthed saying, feed me, feed me, feed me, but they're never growing up and they're never learning to feed themselves and they're they're never being launched out into the world. And so we have this polluted mindset of building to add when Jesus' vision was always to invest to multiply. The American church, much of the American church is building to add, but that was never Jesus' vision for the church. Jesus' vision for the church was always to invest to multiply. I had a professor, an Old Testament professor in seminary, and he was Brazilian. And so he would say this, he would say, we go to the Bible. And so we go to the Bible (laughs) this morning, all right? We go to the Bible. So today's scripture message comes from Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before he ascends back into heaven to rejoin his father. He's concluding his earthly ministry, and these are like his last words to his followers before he departs to go back into heaven and see his father again, all right? And so he says this. This is called the Great Commission often. He gives them these words. Jesus came and told his disciples, he says, I have been given authority in heaven and on earth. And we learned this last week. Jesus is the head of the church. Nobody goes lower than him, so nobody goes higher than him. He's in charge. He says, I'm in charge. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All right, so what's awesome about this moment now is that now the plan of God has been extended to Gentiles, to all nations. So everyone's to go out and to make disciples. All right, you've seen me make disciples out of you 12 men. Now your job is to take that that I've done with you and replicate it with the people that you make I, or meet. I've made you disciples, and now you disciples are supposed to go out, replicate that, multiply that in the people that you have met. And now what he does is he lays out two characteristics of discipleship. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he also says this, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And then he says this, you're not on your own. I'm not just sending you out to the wolves because be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm not just throwing you out there and expecting you to do this all on your own. I'm with you now as I send you out on this mission, and I'm with you on into eternity, and that's the great hope. And so Jesus' vision was always investing to multiply, not building to add. He says to his disciples, do what I've done with you. I've invited you into my life these past three years, and I've made you my disciples. You've had a front row seat to how I did it. Now you go out and do that with the people that you meet. That was always Jesus' vision. And then as he tells these disciples, go and make other disciples, he lays out two characteristics of discipleship. All right, now I often feel like sometimes we think of these as a how-to, but in reality, I think we ought to think these, of these things not as a how to make disciples, but as characteristics of a disciple. So if you were to ask yourself, what is a disciple? These would be two marks of a disciple. All right, this would be what a disciple looks like. The first one, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the first characteristic of discipleship that Jesus lays out is baptism into God's Trinitarian name. First characteristic of discipleship is baptism into God's Trinitarian name. Now, when we think of baptism, 
I think a lot of us might immediately go to the act, especially if we read this as a how-to make disciples. A lot of us right away think of sprinkling of water on a baby, or we might think of someone, if it's a believer's baptism, we might think of someone, you know, coming up out of the water and standing up, all right, after having been baptized or being dunked in the water, or maybe a pitcher of water being poured over somebody's head. We like to think of the act, but this is not the act of baptism that Jesus is talking about. This is baptism as a characteristic of a disciple. So we need to think bigger than that. What this is, is Jesus is saying that the mark of a disciple is someone unto whom the realities of baptism have taken root. Jesus is saying that the mark of a disciple is someone unto whom baptism and all that baptism points towards is now a reality in that person's life. Am I making any sense here? So therefore, a disciple is someone who has the realities of baptism in their life. For instance, this person has left behind an old life, and now they've embraced a new life. This person has been crucified with Christ, and their sins are now washed away. This person is now part of the covenant people of God. This person is marked as a child of God. Right? That's what Jesus is saying, is that the first characteristic of a disciple is someone who manifests all the realities that baptism points to. Maybe it would be another way of saying it. All right? Are you following me here? That's kind of a hard one to grasp. It's hard for me. <laughs> all right? But that's what Jesus is saying. Second characteristic of discipleship is teaching obedience. Jesus says this. He says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. Now, I think many of us, based off of this verse, will equate teaching with discipleship. And I think many of us often will even interchange those terms and use discipleship to mean teaching or teaching to mean discipleship. But discipleship is bigger than that. In fact, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 28. He says, teach these new disciples to obey. He's saying, teach obedience. My question is, how do you teach obedience? And where do you teach obedience? Because you don't teach obedience in a classroom. You teach obedience in a living room. You don't teach obedience in a classroom. You teach obedience in a family room. You don't teach obedience in a classroom. You teach obedience in a kitchen. You teach obedience by being with someone. I mean, think about your own children, right? If it were all teaching in a classroom, if you wanted to teach your child to obey and you did that in a classroom, then all you would have to do is send them to enough class hours and fill their head with enough information and facts and you'd have a perfectly obedient child, right? And we know it doesn't work that way. We know that we teach obedience in our time that we spend with them moment by moment, right? I mean, we were told, or or, or Morgan and I knew that that, um, in order to build your child's vocabulary, You have to name stuff, all right? And so Colin's vocabulary was really stagnant for a long time, and that was one of our concerns with his birth to three was that, oh, his vocabulary is staying the same. And she said, well, continue to label stuff, you know? So we'd label things and and point things out to him all the time. And and one of those things was shoes, you know, shoes, 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 like go get your shoes. And we're putting his shoes on him. We're saying the word shoes over and over again. And and so now we've gotten to the point where sometimes, 50% of the time, we can say to him, go get your shoes, you know, and then he'll go and he'll toddle on over to his shoes and he'll pick up his shoes and we'll bring him over. We think it's great. Like, this is so cool. You know, this little guy does what we say. This is awesome, right? He's learning to obey, okay? So we're excited that he's learning to obey. And then similarly, the Sunday, it was my last Sunday at First Presbyterian, And uh, 
I remember that afternoon, um, Bryn was crying because she was really sad about leaving her church. And, um, and so I'm, I'm hugging my daughter who's crying and tears streaming out of her eyes. And I said to her, I said, we are doing what God has told us to do. And we're going where God has told us to go. And I'm in that moment, I'm trying to teach my daughter that we're putting you through this pain because we're trying to obey the Lord. We're trying to do what God has called us to do. And now she loves Grace 242, right? And she loves this place as we knew it would happen. But in that moment, I wanted to teach her that we're doing what God has called us to do. I wanted to teach her obedience. And that happened in our living room. You don't teach obedience in a classroom. You teach obedience in a living room by being with people, right? I want to show you a picture, and I like this picture because I think it sort of captures what we're trying to talk about here. So go ahead. Go, yeah, yeah, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel. So, right? Yeah, it's funny, <laughs> right? And I remember I got this mailing with this picture on it, and the tagline said, Jesus never made disciples this way, so why do we? Why do we think that putting people in a classroom for a few hours is going to make them turn them out into disciples all of a sudden, right? Because you don't teach obedience in a classroom. Jesus didn't teach obedience in a classroom, he taught obedience by being with his disciples and being in a relationship with them. Relationship is the not-so-secret sauce of discipleship, okay? Relationship is the not-so-secret sauce of discipleship. In fact, I would say that discipleship necessitates relationship. You cannot have discipleship without relationship. And if your discipleship is, to confine, is confined to the classroom, you cannot call it discipleship. Discipleship happens with relationship. Discipleship necessitates relationship. Relationship is not, or I should back up, relationship is the secret sauce of discipleship. Just look at the way Jesus modeled this to us, right? So Jesus lays out these two characteristics of discipleship in the Great Commission. He lays out baptism first. Well, Jesus was baptized. And what happened in that moment? He's being baptized by his friend and his cousin. So he has a relationship with his baptizer. And then on top of that, you see and you get a picture and a window into the relationship that he has with the other members of the Trinity. Because God the Father, heaven opens up and you hear God the Father speak all of his, all of his endorsements over his son and says, this is my boy, I'm pleased with him, he's my guy. And then on top of that, the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and sits on Jesus' shoulder. And you see that the relationship that Jesus has with the other members of the Trinity. And so I ask you, how does that work? And you know how I'm going to respond. I don't know, right? But he has, met, he has a relationship with the other persons of the Trinity, even though he's one God. I don't know how that works, but that's part of the miracle. But you see relationship as he's being baptized. Why did Jesus get baptized? He didn't sin. Why is he getting baptized? As an example to us, as an example of a disciple, to show us this is what a disciple looks like. That's why he's getting baptized. And then he lays out his other characteristic of discipleship, which is teaching them to obey. So what does he do? He doesn't set up a classroom and say, okay, at this time I'm holding a class, 7 p.m., be at the synagogue at this time, and we're going to learn about this, and I'm going to facilitate this for you guys. No, he calls 12 people to himself, and he says, I'm going to live, and I want you to be part of my life, and you're going to go around with me, and we're going to hang out together, and we're going to be closer than family, and you're going to learn me. And in learning me, I expect you to teach others to learn me. All right? And you're going to learn in the context of our relationship together. Right? And so Jesus 
as he calls his disciples together before he leaves this earth to give his final instructions, he's teaching them to multiply. He's saying, I have invested in you for the past three years to multiply this thing that I've started, this Jesus movement, out. All right, I've shown you for the past three years how to do this by living life with you guys. And now my expectation is that you go out and you invite other people into your life the same way I invited you into my life. It's all about building a relationship. I expect you to go out and make relationships with these people that you meet and invest in them and pour into them. It was never building to add. It was always investing to multiply. You know, what's interesting is that it's, it's really no wonder why the American church builds to add. Because what do you need to build ad? You need money. You need enough money to pay for a good speaker pastor. You need enough money to pay a good band. You need enough money to build a building. So if you can get enough money together, you got it. You got to build an ad. But what does investing to multiply uh, require? That is a much higher ask. Because that requires us to make space in our schedule for other people. And make space in our you know, emotional capacity for other people. And that requires us to get messy with other people. And that requires us to open ourselves up and be vulnerable with other people and invite people into our circle that's not just our nuclear family, all right? That is a huge ask. And so it's no wonder that the church settles for building to add rather than investing to multiply because investing to multiply is a much higher ask. And I shouldn't even use the word ask. is a much higher requirement that Jesus puts on the church. You know what's really exciting about this sermon to me? Is that I want to be a place where we invest to multiply. And I hear a lot of pastors and a lot of churches saying, we want to make disciples. You know, we want to invest to multiply. But then you look at their practice, and their practice is built to add. And I want to be a place that actually does invest to multiply rather than building to add. And you know what's really exciting to me about this sermon? Is I feel like we're already doing that. That's one of the reasons why I came here. Full disclosure. That's one of the reasons why I came here. One of the reasons why I'm excited about this place and why I love this place. is because I have heard, we want to invest and multiply. And then I see people that are actually trying to do it. And some people are actually doing it. <laughs> right? But I'm excited because I, 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 I feel like we've decided or, or you, you decided or the Lord decided for Grace 242 as it was formed or, or before I came that it's like, you know, we're not going to get distracted with the build to add. We're not going to get distracted that way. And we're going to intentionally say, we're here to invest and multiply. Even though it feels weird and even though we don't always know what we're doing and even though it doesn't always seem very successful and even though the numbers of Grace 242 might not necessarily rise or fall, but we want a kingdom of God that gets added to. We want to grow the population of the kingdom and we want to do that by actually doing what Jesus said by investing to multiply. And I'm seeing that happening. And I can't tell you how exciting that is as your pastor. And I want that to continue. And the moment that that stops, I'm out of here. Seriously. I'm so, why do you think we meet in a nature preserve? Because we said we want to invest to multiply. All right. I'm so excited to be part of this place, you guys. And if I can just encourage you in this morning to keep doing that. And if you're not doing it, all right, I, I, I would say, come to, come to me. I'd love to tell you. Or, you know, or I'd just say, just pick somebody. 
at your work that, you know, or ask the Holy Spirit, like, Holy Spirit, is there someone that you want me to open my life up to? And maybe there's a guy that you share a cubicle or you sit next to in a cubicle. I don't know what it is. Maybe there's someone at your church that you know is really like going through a messy divorce. Or maybe you have someone whose kid is, you know, like really ruining their lives and they're torn up about it and they have no faith. So they have nothing to ground them as they're going through their trouble. And you just start opening your life to them and say, hey, you want to eat lunch together today? I don't know what it is, but just open up your life to somebody. And I'm more than happy to talk with you or help you or whatever. But I I would love that Grace 242 is a church where everybody in here is opening up our lives to somebody else towards Christ-likeness. That's what I would love. And I think that's what God wants for our church. I'm so excited to be part of a place where this is already happening. Let's do it more. Let's do it more. Amen. Amen.